Hi, everyone. Welcome to Foresight uh, Neurotech Group. Um, we are super happy to kick off the next year, which is now the second year that uh, this group has been about. And really, really, really excited to have Steve here uh, today. I think to uh, do uh, perhaps a little bit of an intro uh, that uh, also um, gives a segue into a few exciting things that we have coming up at Foresight. Um, you know, we have different groups at Foresight. One is the Neurot uh, Neurotech Group which uh, this is recorded in. And then we have another one that's the Intelligent Corporation Group, and that really focuses on decentralized computing and ways in which humans and ultimately AIs can cooperate better. And so Stephen has this really interesting, I think, talk happening that's at the intersection really growing uh, these two fields. And I think many folks uh, probably here also in this room and probably those seeing it afterwards on YouTube have uh, recently realized that some timelines are shortening. <laughs> uh, and uh, based on this, uh, there's a lot of, I think, yeah, just an impetus um, currently for like uh, exploring different ways in which we can make AIs safer um, that has um, various different kind of like impetuses from various other fields. And so one thing, for example, that we will be doing this year, which will be happening around May, around the EAG uh, Global Conference in London, is that we'll be doing an event, which is the whole brain emulation workshop. And that's going to be an event in person at Oxford. Uh, with the goal to really figure out if there is uh, a potential to revisit Anders Sandberg Hoban emulation roadmap that he wrote uh, quite a while ago um, uh, in, in the current technological speeds uh, time perception. Uh, and then also seeing whether there's uh, different ways in which we can apply this to make AI systems safer um, uh, or whether there's even potential risks that are uh, kind of like occurring from uh, speeding up Hoban emulations. So we have a bunch of people already confirmed. If you're interested in joining this workshop and you're seeing the style, you can apply to join. Um, and where we basically, it, it's mostly like a revamp of the uh, the roadmap, then with an additional focus on AI safety. But for now, I'm really, really happy to really dive deep into this topic. I think Stephen has done like a ton of work on this lately. I've just like really had a chance to skim most of the work that you've been doing. And maybe to position your work in a foresight context, I would love to uh, have Marina show a little bit on the newer tech tree that we've been building. Um, and to position like basically like the work uh, in relation to previous things that people in this group have been working on. Um, and then I'll give you the stage and then we'll do a Q&A afterwards. Uh, but that's all for me, Marina, if you'd like to uh, share screen, now is a great time. I think I actually, oh, okay, now it works, right? I just did it a minute ago and it didn't work. Yeah, I want to show again um, some progress on our foresight neurotech tree. So this is the place where we try to build the roadmaps from existing technologies to the future that we want to achieve in the field. And basically here we try to summarize all the methods that we currently use in the neuroimaging, uh, or sorry, neuroimaging is my personal field. So in neurosciences and also brain computer interfaces. And of course, at some point, we wanted to put AI somewhere on our tree. But in fact, it turned out that we can basically connect AI to everything. So we're still thinking how to do it correctly. And AI is definitely the, one of the tools that currently is a must in our field. Um, yeah. So at the moment, uh, we placed AI very modestly at the bottom, still thinking how to build the right connections to all the other, um, all the other technologies and the fields. And of course, although we all try to 
use some sort of AI in our work and also explainable AI became kind of a topic, at least in, in my specific field, uh, where we try to deploy it for, uh, run the diagnostics. Um, yeah. But of course, what we all are afraid of is the AGI. And I think for most of us, and I can say for myself at least, AGI is really something that is like from the field of um, science fiction. Um, Looks really dangerous, but I was really glad to see that you're giving a presentation. I was, and I was also looking through your blog post. and I'm really looking forward to to say how do you foresee that AI alignment uh, and what can we do collectively about this topic. So thank you so much. Hopefully we can discuss it basically in the context of our tree in the future. Um, but at the moment, I just want to give a short introduction to it and give the word to you. Yeah. Thanks. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Marita. Thank you, Steve, so much for joining us. Uh, you'll be discussing challenges on the path to brain-like uh, AGI and potential opportunities. I'm sharing a bit more about you in the chat. Uh, thank you so, so, so much. I cannot wait for uh, the Q&A. I have lots of questions to ask, but for now, the stage is yours. Uh, please go ahead. If you want to screen share, now's a great time. Okay. Um, can everybody see that? Okay. Uh, yeah, um, thanks for inviting me. Um, and uh, I'm going to talk about, yeah, uh, challenges for safe and beneficial brain like artificial general intelligence or AGI for short. Um, and, uh, yeah, this is sort of based, but, uh, based on, uh, a blog post series that you can Google search for or just type in this easy to remember URL, capital H, lowercase z, c. Uh, I'm only joking. Um, Okay, so uh, yeah, I'll start with some general motivation uh, and then a very big picture of brain algorithms as I see them. Uh, and then I'll talk about uh, uh, the hypothalamus and brainstem in particular. Um, and uh, well, let's just uh, jump into the talk. Uh, so the big question that I'm interested in is what happens when people figure out how to run brain-like algorithms on computer chips? Um, so uh, I claim that this is something that uh, is very likely to happen sooner or later. Um, and when I put it, this question to people, uh, they tend to have one of two very different reactions. One is that we should uh, think of these algorithms as like a tool for people to use. Uh, and the other, which is that we should think of these algorithms as uh, like a new uh, intelligent species that we're inviting onto our planet. Uh, so let's start with the uh, tool perspective. So if we put brain-like algorithms on computer chips, then that is a form of artificial intelligence. And uh, the way that everybody thinks of AI today is that it's a tool for people to use. So if that's your perspective, then the sub-problem that I'm particularly interested in and working on is accident prevention. We want to make sure that... Um, that we avoid the situation where the uh, AI is doing something that nobody wanted it to do, not its programmers, not anybody else. Like, um, you know, uh, be deceptive uh, and seek power and things like that. Um, do destructive actions. Um, so you could say, why would somebody program an AI to do things that they didn't want it to do? And the answer is that that's a thing that happens all the time. Uh, it's called 
a bug if it's a small problem, and it's called a fundamentally flawed software design if it's a big problem, but it's certainly a thing that happens. Um, so in this case, the technical problem that I'm interested in solving is uh, if people figure out how to run brain-like algorithms on computer chips, and they want these algorithms to be trying to do X, where X is solar cell research or being honest or whatever you can think of that the programmers want, um, then what source code should they write? What training environment should they use or whatever the um, points of intervention are on the code to make sure that that actually happens? Uh, and this turns out to be a surprisingly tricky problem, I claim, for uh, pretty deep reasons, although I won't necessarily get uh, into it very much in this talk. Um, so uh, in the sort of tree of uh, awesome post-AGI utopia, uh, one thing that we want to do is avoid catastrophic accidents. Uh, and then within that, uh, we wanted to have like uh, an instruction manual, let's say, for how to program a safe AGI that avoids catastrophic accidents. So that's this red box on the bottom left. Uh, that's not uh, the complete story. We also have to have everybody actually follow the manual, uh, avoid war and inequality and, and all the other problems. Um, uh, and uh, without minimizing those problems, I'll just say that if we don't have that instruction manual, uh, we're screwed. So it's well worth trying to solve that problem too. Um, so then that was the like uh, AI as a tool for people to use perspective. Um, when I bring that up again, a lot of people sort of strenuously disagree with that. And they say, no, 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 no. If we put brain-like algorithms on computer chips, then we should not think of them as a tool for people to use. We should think of them as a new intelligent species on our planet. Uh, incidentally, a new intelligent species that is probably going to eventually vastly outnumber humans and think much faster than us and be more insightful and creative and competent and make plans and pivot when the plans fail and, you know, build tools to solve their problems and, and all the things that, that humans can do and groups of humans and societies of humans can do. Uh, presumably brain like algorithms on computer chips could do those things too. And sooner or later they will. So if we are inviting this new intelligent species onto our planet, then how do we make sure it's a species that we actually want to share the planet with? Uh, and vice versa, how do we make sure that they want to share the planet with us? And uh, again, there's a technical problem, which is whatever pr properties we want the species to have, we need to write the source code or come up with the training environments or whatever it is to make that happen. Uh, I think that high-functioning sociopaths are an illustrative example here. Uh, they exist. Uh, therefore, you can have brain-like algorithms on computer chips that are able to make plans and accomplish impressive things, um, you know, invent new technology, uh, but have no inherent motivation uh, to compassion and friendship and things like that. Uh, and I would go further and say it's not only possible, but um, easier, strictly easier um, to, to make code that does that. Um, I think that uh, if we want our future AGIs to feel compassion and friendship, that's an extra thing that future programmers are going to have to put into the source code. And I claim that they, that we don't currently have the knowledge of what exactly those future programmers should be putting into the source code to create compassion and friendship. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that, uh, in the talk. Um, okay. So moving on, uh, to a, my proposed, uh, very big picture of brain algorithms. Um, so, uh, before I start diving into brains, um, I just want to like get everybody's, uh, enthusiasm up by saying, yes, we do know enough about brain algorithms to say useful things about a hypothetical 
brain-like AGI. Um, so I do get some pushback uh, even at this point. Um, you know, I, I sort of poke fun at this myself. Uh, the human brain is actually quite complicated. Um, but uh, I don't think we should be too put off by that. Uh, and the basic reason is that uh, I claim that understanding the brain well enough to make brain-like AGI, which is what I'm particularly interested in, uh, is different from and much simpler than uh, understanding the brain full stop. Uh, and there's a few reasons for that. Uh, the first reason is that, uh, in general, learning algorithms are much simpler than trained models. So probably many of you in the audience know how one would train a convolutional neural net um, you know, gradient descent and convolutions, it's all pretty straightforward. Um, but probably nobody in the audience could look at a hundred million parameter, uh, trained continent and say how it is distinguishing different breeds of dog. Uh, so by the same token, um, if you look in the neuroscience and cognitive science literature, uh, there's a lot of people that are trying to address questions, uh, that are basically, Hey, here's an adult human or an adult rat or whatever doing some intelligent behavior. How does it do that intelligent behavior? And I claim that these are at least partly trained model questions and not just learning algorithm questions. And therefore, they inherit the uh, complexity of trained models. Uh, and I claim that people will be building brain-like AGI long before anyone can answer those kinds of questions about how adult humans do intelligent things. Uh, the second reason is that, uh, by and large, algorithms are much, much simpler than their physical instantiations. So again, probably much of the audience, maybe everybody in the audience knows how to build a convolutional neural net, um, but probably nobody in the audience could explain in full detail how that training happens uh, on hardware, because that includes everything from your CUDA compilers and GPU layouts to, you know, how does a transistor work, semiconductor fabrication, uh, you know, quantum tunneling, on and on and on. Um, and uh, by the same token, if you look inside a brain, you find, you know, you can just zoom into arbitrary depths and you find this sort of unfolding fractal-like complexity of more and more things going on, protein cascades and whatnot. And I claim that people are going to be building brain-like AGI long before anyone has unraveled all of that complexity. Uh, and then last but not least, uh, not everything in the brain is required for brain-like AGI. So you can find generally intelligent people uh, who can, you know, hold down a job and so on and so forth, uh, but they're lacking, let's say, an entire cortical hemisphere or missing a cerebellum, don't have a sense of smell, so on. Um, so just to take some random example, somewhere in your medulla, in your brainstem, is some little brain circuit that says, you know, how and when to vomit, like what muscles should you contract in what order? Uh, I don't expect that anybody, I would be shocked if anybody is reverse engineering that and putting it into AGI. I think we're going to build AGI before we understand how that stupid little circuit in the medulla uh, makes us all suffer like that. Okay, so uh, moving on. Um, there's a key term or concept that I want to introduce uh, called learning from scratch. Um, that's really central to how I think about the brain. Um, so I'll give two examples of what I mean by learning from scratch, uh, and then I'll talk about uh, what they have in common. So the first example is any machine learning algorithm that's initialized from random weights. And the second example is a blank flash drive that I just bought from the store. So the bits are all initially random or they're all zeros or whatever. 
Uh, so what do these have in common? Um, they initially can only emit signals that are random garbage, but over time they can emit more and more useful signals. Uh, so in the case of the flash drive, uh, as we all know, you can't extract any useful information off of a flash drive until you've already written information onto the flash drive. Uh, and in the case of this randomly initialized machine learning algorithm, um, it will be, uh, you know, uh, any classification that it, or, you know, any output that you get out of it is going to be random garbage uh, when it's initialized. And you have to wait for the weights to be updated, you know, usually by gradient descent um, before you start getting more and more useful signals. So I claim that this is something that we can uh, uh, posit as a possible thing that we'll find in the brain too. Uh, so in the brain, we would be looking for some part of the brain that um, is initially useless um, you know, so at birth, this part of the brain is doing nothing whatsoever useful to help the animal survive and thrive. Um, well, there could be some learning in the womb or egg or whatever, but let's just say birth for simplicity. Um, but then as the animal grows up, this part of the brain gets more and more useful. So again, you know, memory modules would be a good example. If an animal has just been born, then it has nothing useful, uh, that it gets out of recalling the, the capability to recall memories. Um, so I claim, or my hypothesis is that a whopping 96% of the human brain by volume is in this category of things that learn from scratch. Uh, so that includes the whole cortical mantle, neocortex and allocortex, um, the amygdala, the striatum, um, the cerebellum, uh, the major exceptions uh, that I see are the hypothalamus and brainstem. I think that the hypothalamus and brainstem are absolutely 100% not in the category of learning from scratch. I think they are doing uh, lots of important things for the organism uh, just from the way that they're built. So uh, that is a hypothesis, and we can all ask ourselves, should we believe it? Uh, my take is that there's actually lots of strong evidence for it. Um, you can read my blog post, Learning from Scratch in the Brain, to uh, see where I'm coming from on that. Uh, I find that a few neuroscientists agree and a few disagree. Uh, I sort of get the impression that the vast majority haven't really considered it as a hypothesis. Uh, that's why I would like to raise, raise it as a thing to discuss in the discourse. Um, so uh, I had this example. Um, I'm not, maybe I'm, I'm too... Uh, cowardly to have brought it up if, if I had known that he would be in the audience. But um, uh, anyway, Tony Zader's uh, critique of pure learning paper uh, is a very interesting paper. But uh, as far as I can tell, it doesn't even mention the possibility. Uh, so he sort of talks about pure learning as opposed to, um, so he said, if you have a pure learning algorithm, then that's incompatible with animals having instincts that they can do at birth. And then um, the sort of suggestion is, okay, maybe we should think of it as a pre-trained model. Um, but I don't think it even raises the possibility that maybe there's part of the brain, like the cortex, that is a pure learning algorithm, and part of the brain, like the brainstem, which is just not a learning algorithm at all. Uh, so um, if you believe my hypothesis, then you wind up with a picture of the brain that looks kind of like this. There's two subsystems, a learning subsystem and a steering subsystem. I'll get back uh, in a little bit to why I'm calling it that. Um, we have uh, inputs going to both. Uh, again, I'll get back to that. Um, so we have all these complicated trained models in the learning subsystem that, that are uh, 
Well, they're complicated by the time you're an adult, probably horrifically complicated by the time you're an adult. Um, and they're learned from scratch. Uh, and then the model outputs are going down to the steering subsystem and various supervisory and control signals are going back up. Uh, and the steering subsystem is where you find species specific instincts in particular. Um, so, uh, I want to put in some points of clarification at this point, things that my two subsystem picture is not. So the first thing it's not is, um, the, uh, what Jeff Hawkins calls old brain versus new brain, what Paul McLean calls triune brain. So for one thing, I draw the boundaries differently. Uh, I think the amygdala is definitely, uh, in the learning subsystem, um, not the steering subsystem. Um, as, as one example. Uh, and also I think both subsystems are extremely old. Um, I think that even if you look at a fruit fly nervous system, you can break it up into a learning subsystem, which is, uh, related, which is actually homologous to ours and a steering subsystem, which is again, homologous to ours. Uh, of course the, our steering subsystem now is a lot more complicated than it was 650 million years ago. And likewise, so is our learning subsystem. But both have these uh, ancient origins, I think. Um, the next thing that uh, it is not is blank slate or nurture rather than nature. So for one thing, um, I am allocating this whole part of the brain, uh, namely the hypothalamus and brainstem, to just be a giant repository of species-specific instincts. Um, those instincts are real and they're important and they have a place in the brain. Another thing is that learning algorithms themselves have you know, they're not blank. If anybody's programmed a learning algorithm, the thing that you don't do is, um, you know, open up a blank Python interpreter and say, okay, I'm done now. You have to program it in. There's a neural architecture. There's learning rules. There's hyperparameters. Um, there's a lot of things in there. Um, and then last but not least, uh, learning is different than uh, a human is deliberately teaching me. So for example, if you have intrinsic motivation, uh, then in a learning algorithm, then you can wind up with complex behavior, but that's not the same as saying that, you know, a parent can sculpt their child like, um, like a mold, like a block of clay, you know? Uh, so the third thing that this is not is plasticity versus not plastic. Um, so if you have a learning subsystem, uh, or any learning algorithm, then clearly you need plasticity. You need to be changing synapses or changing something else, uh, in order to store that memorized content. Um, but uh, if you have the hypothalamus and brainstem, even if they're not learning algorithms, they can still have plasticity in them. So for example, anytime you have uh, you know, a, a certain algorithm that has a persistent variable in it, let's say tracking the number of times that a rat has won a fight in its life, uh, you know, that's sort of a counter variable. Um, but it's not a learning algorithm, but it's still plasticity. And then the last thing that this is not is some brilliant idea that I made up that is totally different from anything that you'll find in machine learning. Uh, I claim that you can just pull up any GitHub repository from NeurIPS and you'll find uh, learning subsystems and steering subsystems uh, if you uh, put a little effort into dividing it up. And maybe there's a few places where there's a gray area, but um, by and large, uh, and it even often... Um, corresponds to the distinction between code that runs on the GPU versus the CPU. Although not always, certainly not perfectly. Okay, so um, uh, the final part of my talk is to uh, dive into the steering subsystem, the hypothalamus and brainstem, uh, because I claim that it's the ultimate source of motivations, drives, and values, and so on. 
uh, which has very important implications for uh, how I think about uh, AGI safety uh, and some related open problems. Okay, so uh, I claim that, yeah, from a safety perspective, we should more or less think of the brain as doing a version of model-based reinforcement learning. Uh, so I don't think this should be too controversial. Uh, there's a model. I can make predictions. Um, I'm going to go to the store and get a candy bar. Uh, if I go, they will actually have candy bars. I can make predictions pretty reliably. Um, the model is updated by self-supervised learning. Uh, if I see something that's unexpected, then um, next time I see it, it won't be quite so unexpected. And finally, there's reinforcement learning. If I touch a hot stove, I probably won't do it again. Um, so having said that, I want to clarify that model-based reinforcement learning is a very big tent. Uh, I have not done this, but uh, you can, I think, probably download hundreds, if not thousands, of archive papers that all describe themselves in the abstract, or even the title, as doing model-based reinforcement learning. But they'll all be different from each other. And I think they'll all be different from the brain, too. There's a lot of different ways to set these things up. Uh, so the details won't really matter for this talk. Uh, you can read uh, my blog post period series for uh, somewhat more details, although that's a little bit of the more speculative part of the series. Um, so I mentioned before that I keep saying steering subsystem, and why am I calling it that? Um, well, the reason is that one particularly important task that it does is to steer the learning subsystem to emit ecologically useful outputs by sending it rewards. Um, so you touch a hot stove, and then the steering subsystem sends a negative reward, and then later on, you're less likely to touch the hot stove again. Uh, and not only that, but you would probably think of touching the hot stove as a bad thing to avoid. You would incorporate that into your plans. Don't do a dance where you might fall onto a hot stove. Um, and this is analogous to how reinforcement learning reward function can steer alpha zero to win it go. If it sends rewards for winning it go, and it can steer alpha zero to be uh, unusually good at losing a go if you send, you know, rewards with the opposite side. Um, okay, yeah, sorry about this wall of text slide. Um, also sorry about every other slide. This is not my best presentation. Okay, so, um, uh, there's, I claim there's three types of that when we, when we open up the, the hood in our future, brain like artificial general intelligence systems, there's three types of ingredients that we might find in the corresponding steering subsystem. So the first type of ingredients is things that just need to be there in order for the um, algorithm to uh, develop into sort of general intelligence that can, you know, make plans and do science and all the things that people are going to want their AGIs to do. Uh, so an example in this category is uh, the curiosity drive. I think there's some pretty strong reason to believe that um, uh, that it's hard to get like very capable AIs that don't have any curiosity drives. Um, certainly uh, in the machine learning literature today, people have done that and found that it helps their results. So in insofar as that kind of thing is important, uh, then we it is in humans and it is going to be in future AGIs for better or worse. Uh, so then the second category is... Um, everything else in the human steering subsystem. So think of fear of heights, think of fear of snakes, uh, sexual attraction. Um, I especially want to call out social instincts, which I think are important for our, you know, moral intuitions and things like that. 
Um, and these tend to be present present in competent humans, but not always. Uh, again, I mentioned high functioning sociopaths as an example of people with uh, very different social instincts, but they can nevertheless, uh, you know, make plans and do science and all those other things. Um, and these uh, are not by default expected in future AGIs unless we figure out exactly how they work and convince uh, future AGI developers to actually put them into the code. And then last but not least, we have every other possibility, uh, most of which are any are wildly different from anything that you'll find in any human or animal. Think of like a drive, an innate drive to increase the company's stock price. So, you know, we're writing the code. We can put in whatever we want. I don't think that we should put in increase the company's stock price as an innate drive in an AGI. That sounds like a terrible idea, but it doesn't mean that people won't do it. Okay, so the real uh, a very, very important question now is how do these work? How does the steering subsystem know when to provide reward? So I call this the million-dollar question. And the reason that it's a tricky question is that the hypothalamus and brainstem are kind of stupid. So uh, in our cortexes and, you know, to some extent, striatum and, and hippocampus and other things are uh, this very complicated model of the world, including, you know, debt and calculators and multiplication and dates and all these other things that, you know, and, you know, my friend Sally, all the things that we know in the world are in our cortex. The hypothalamus and brainstem are these things that sort of are executing particular calculations that got evolved into our genome and um, don't have that kind of world model. So how are, how is the brain going to get by putting these things in charge of providing the reward function? Um, so there's a few parts of the answer, um, I claim. Uh, one part of the answer is that the steering subsystem has its own uh, too often ignored sensory processing systems. So uh, I mentioned this, or if you look closely at a previous diagram, uh, that was this little arrow here. Um, so uh, the brain experts will know that, you know, visual information goes to the visual cortex. That's the famous one that everybody talks about, but it also goes to the superior colliculus in the brainstem. Likewise, uh, taste goes to the brainstem. Uh, smell goes uh, to the hypothalamus, I think. Um, all of these things go both to the cortex and to the hypothalamus and brainstem. Um, so uh, any innate reaction that is based on uh, sensory heuristics like, uh, you know, a snake detector or face detector uh, in the case of, of vision, uh, that would be in the superior colliculus. And likewise, you know, if there's a innate reversion, revulsion to the smell of rotten meat, that would again be the pathway that goes straight to the hypothalamus, I claim. The literature on this isn't great, so I'm trying to piece this together. Uh, and I'm happy to talk more details about uh, with anybody who's interested. Um, but that's not the whole answer. I think there have to be other parts of the answer too. Um, for example, uh, it's at least plausible that there is an innate envy reaction um, but your brain can't calculate when to feel envious from simple heuristics on sensory inputs. Um, so how does that work? Um, I think empathetic simulation might be involved. Uh, mostly, I don't have a great answer here. I'm working on it. I'm very interested for uh, other people to work on it too. You can read post number 13 of my series for some vague speculations about sort of the 
the types of models that I'm thinking about so far. Okay, so um, in conclusion, uh, what happens when people figure out how to run brain-like algorithms on computer chips? Uh, I claim this is a very big deal, probably the best or worst thing that will have ever happened to humanity. Uh, and um, I hope to have given you the idea that there's technical work that we can do today to increase the odds that things go well. And uh, thank you for listening. Wonderful. Thank you so, so much. This was awesome. Um, yeah, and I, I, I also really like that it's modeling some of the things that you really go through also in the articles too. So I posted already a little bit more information about that here in the chat, but for anyone who wants more, uh, that's a really great place to look. Um, usually our algorithm here is that I ask questions until someone stops me by raising their head. So I'm going to go ahead with this now. Um, yeah, from diving a little bit uh, into your papers, I would be really, really uh, interested to see, uh, I don't know if you can say very much about this, but like, what is your rough timeline on this? I know that you've um, uh, at least written, I think, a re response to neuromorphic computing, I think within uh, 20 years. Um, but yeah, what's your rough timeline on us developing something like this, if you have anything? Um, oh, when will people develop AGI? Um, I, I don't know. Uh, I claim that nobody else knows either. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, let's see. Um, I have a little discussion in the blog post series. Uh, I think that we should have very wide error margins. Um, I feel like I would be very surprised if we had brain like AGI, let's say sooner than, I don't know, eight or 10 years. Um, I feel like I would be very surprised if we didn't have it in more than, I don't know, 30 or 40 years. Uh, but I want to uh, emphasize that that's really just not based on very much. Um, and uh, the real thing is that um, forecasting, uh, I guess you, you would know this as, as well as anyone, forecasting technological developments and when they're going to happen is just a really hard thing to do. Um, and... Yeah, you, you can read, read the series for slightly more justification for the sorts of intuitions that are rattling around my brain when I mention those numbers. Um, but okay. uh, whatever it is, uh, we should be working on uh, safety and preparation right now because for all we know, it could be very soon. And we also don't know how long it's going to take to uh, do whatever we need to do to be ready for that to happen. Yeah, great. Uh, thanks. I think that's uh, totally good enough. I was just wondering mostly of like, have you recently updated a lot, uh, given recent developments or, you know, were you already thinking, hey, just in general, this is something useful to, uh, to focus on. I'm, I'm just, yeah, not sure what, uh, um, if there has had, had been any update. Uh, I think that chat GPT is very cool. Um, and I think language models can probably do some things that, uh, if you had asked me five years ago, uh, I wouldn't have anticipated that they could do such cool things. Uh, I still think that um, some new ideas are going to happen between now and AGI. And uh, the particular details of exactly how impressive the large language models are uh, has not played into my uh, estimates of when we're going to get AGI, for better or worse. Okay, wonderful. And uh, could you, I don't know if you've, thought much on that like in particular with like different types of computing hardware or like uh, approaches to building hardware uh, i know that you've written a little bit about neuromorphic computing but um, i'm wondering if you 
if you think, yeah, what's your perspective on how different types of computing architecture will influence um, the, uh, yeah, the approaches that you're proposing? Um, I have a uh, reasonably strong belief that um, when people figure out the, uh, how the, you know, learning algorithms and other aspects of the human brain that power human intelligence, when people figure out how they work, uh, they're going to be able to run them or they're just going to run them on whatever types of chips are most common, which if it was today would be, you know, probably GPUs, uh, other types of ASICs, um, as opposed to, um, I don't know, weird neuromorphic chips, which as far as I can tell are not so well developed right now. Um, and mostly focused on low power is sensors. But uh, it's been a while since I looked into the state of the art on uh, neuromorphic chips. So I don't want to speak to that with any confidence. Okay, cool. Then because on your last slide, uh, you're pointing to a specific technical work one can do um, to increase the odd that things go well. Could you go into like perhaps a little bit more of uh, these directions that you're pointing people to or say now about excited about this strategy? Um, yeah, I mean, there, the one thing that I mentioned in the talk was, uh, this open problem about, uh, trying to look at the, you know, explain how social instincts work, um, in a way that is compatible with the sort of framework that I have in mind, assuming that that framework is correct, of course. Um, uh, you can read the last blog post of my series for, I think I list seven different uh, avenues for further research, uh, a couple in neuroscience, a couple in sort of normal computer science and machine learning, uh, and then a couple in sort of more weird sci-fi AGI safety type stuff. Cool. But I think you also mentioned on the um, slide that uh, anything like these more, you know, like basically like empathetic simulation doesn't necessarily have to be a part of the system. So do you think that uh, it may be easier to build systems that don't contain that um, and they would be at a comparative advantage then to the ones that do or? Um, right. Uh, so let's see. So the, the sort of the threat model or the bad scenario would be that uh, nobody really has a good idea of what to put in a steering subsystem such that the AGI wants to be nice and compassionate towards humans in particular. Um, or, you know, the, the steering subsystem in conjunction with a training environment, life experience. Um, so that would be the problem. I think that it is possible to make an AGI uh, that has callous disregard for humans, um, just like sociopaths, more or less. Um, and I think that uh, understanding how uh, you know, what, what's going on in the brainstem and hypothalamus that leads to humans wanting to be nice to each other would be valuable towards the project of making AGIs that want to be nice to humans, um, either directly or indirectly valuable. Uh, I think, you know, um, uh, I don't think that empath. So, um, then this sort of question about, uh, this open, open neuroscience question of, um, how, how, what is going on in the hypothalamus and brainstem, uh, is the question that is an open problem that I have sort of vague ideas about, but I don't have great answers right now. And it might involve empathetic simulation.
Cool. Well, I don't want to put words in uh, Stephen Pinker's mouth, <laughs> but I thought that, you know, some, one of the arguments, for example, that he was making is like the decrease of violence over time led to us having to actually kind of like um, put ourselves into the shoes of other people more to like actually figure out um, how we can cooperate best with them and offer them better deals. And so that like some of this like, you know, empathetic action that we have now was really like our way of better cooperating with other folks. Um, as violence became a less uh, agreeable <laughs> solution uh, to, to inflict on others. And so maybe, you know, one could imagine at least it being almost like an instrumental way of cooperating better. Um, so maybe there's even a comparative advantage at like potentially simulating something like yeah, empathy towards humans just to basically figure out how to better, like, yeah, how to better cooperate with them uh, and uh, be more likely to be reinforced. Do you think there's anything there, there, or it's more? Um, I mean, so if you make your agent that has that ultimately doesn't care about other people at all, um, but uh, you know has goals, uh, it could. So what you don't want is your AGI that um, realizes that uh, it is instrumentally useful to um, cooperate with humans because that's an AGI that will cooperate with humans. Uh, exactly when that's a useful thing to do. And then as soon as it gets an opportunity to stab them in the back, uh, then it's going to. Um, so that's the like, you know, if you deal with a sociopath, you'll, you'll also see them, you know, being nice to people when it's convenient to do so, uh, or has returns. There's another, uh, issue there, which is that, um, uh, yeah, I don't think that, um, I think most people agree that, uh, our genetic, uh, basis for being nice to each other hasn't changed much in the last hundred thousand years, or at least ten thousand years. Um, but our environments have changed a lot, um, and uh, clearly uh, that's that's relevant too. Um, and when we are training our future AGIs, then certainly the training environment will be relevant. Um, and I don't have a great answer to exactly what kind of training environment um, we want to use for our AGIs. I think that the sort of trope that we should raise them in a loving family is a little too simplistic but um uh clearly we need to do something so i I don't know well i think there are a few interesting you know approaches like uh critches and cultured ai um i'm not sure how familiar you you are with it uh i think not familiar enough to to talk about it Uh, i i've heard of it well Um, i vaguely remember it yeah Okay. Well, I mean, I guess it's just a, uh, like a different game or, or basically like a computer game approach to basically gradually inculturating the AI systems, um, uh, into like what these humans, well, well, and into the culture of those human players. And so maybe that's like an interesting way to, to train them. And, um, but yeah, I also, um, and maybe this is one of some of my last questions and then I'll just leave it to people in the chat also had a few questions, but, um, I saw you also commented on AI debate from OpenAI. And so I'd be really, really interested in uh, getting your take um, on what you think of these, I guess, like there have been a few, I think, at least recent developments that I thought were quite interesting. Number one, for example, you had, I think, Stuart Armstrong and Rebecca Gorman um, use one chat GPT to um, at least monitor (laughs) uh, a jailbreak uh, prompt for other chat GPTs. So basically you would... uh, Ask one ChatGPT to imagine that it's Ilya Zirikovsky with a very strong security mindset, 
um, and then ask it whether a prompt to another uh, chat GPT would be let through by that first chat GPT. And it often got things like relatively right in the like little few experiments that they've done. And then I think there's like similar, at least I think attempts or I classify them similarly where you can use some AI systems to keep others in check. Uh, one of them, I think, uh, is OpenAI's debate, where basically you have two very intelligent um, agents that may be more intelligent than a human is, and they are debating uh, a particular matter out with a human judge in the loop. Um, and you had this really, I think, interesting <laughs> analogy of that, uh, of being like strapped um, on a mono water ski behind uh, two rockets that are pulling to different directions. So I'm really, really curious to see your take on what do you think about, you know, the general opportunity of us using different AI systems to either keep each other in check or, you know, to have another human in the loop. I know that there's also constitutional AI, I think, from the topic, which is really just using one AI to uh, kind of like to keep another in check. So there's like different approaches from different AI labs right now that are more kind of like relying on this more cooperative AI model or on this model where you have different agents monitoring each other. And I'd be really, really curious if you think that this is something that has any, um, yeah, any promise and, and how that relates at all to, uh, to the research that you're proposing. Um, uh, yeah. So the, the, there's a lot in that question and a lot of it's kind of in the weeds. Um, let's see. I guess I'll say that, um, I'm mostly, uh, concerned about, um, the sort of scenario where we make, uh, AGIs that are trying to do things, um, and, um, like they, they have goals that, and they make plans to, um, make those goals happen. I think that that's, that we're not, I think that people are going to build those types of AI sooner or later. And, um, that that's, uh, the sort of, well, I guess threat model, if you want to make it sound bad, um, or that's, that's the issue that I'm thinking about, um, and so if we have an AI that is trying to do something, then um, the real conundrum is how to make sure that the thing that it's trying to do is the thing that we want it to be trying to do. So uh, it's easy to say we're going to, you know, have an a two, two AIs debate each other. This is this paper called AGI Safety by a Debate by Jeff Irving and Paul Cristiano from a few years ago. Um, that's sort of spawned a little industry. Um, but if you aren't sure how to make sure that the two AIs in the debate are actually trying to win the debate, honestly, then you haven't really helped your problem. Like, um, and that's really the problem. We don't know, or at least I don't know. I don't think anybody knows right now how to make an AI that is definitely trying to win the debate. Like, it's not necessary, you know, we can give it a reward function that rewards it for trying to win the debate. But that same reward function could also be described as this is a reward function for, you know, trying to for successfully winning the debate or hacking into the reward system and giving yourself a high score. Uh, or it could be like, you know, there isn't necessarily a difference between, you know, reward for winning the debate by following the rules versus reward for winning the debate by cheating um or lying or whatever um if we can make an ai that is really truly trying to follow the rules and win the debate uh then why don't we just use the same approach to make an ai that is really truly honestly trying to just tell you what the right answer is uh in my opinion um 
So I think those are more addressed towards somewhat different development models. Um, there's a lot of people who have different ideas about how people are going to build a AI and what it's going to look like um, that are not necessarily in the sort of model-based reinforcement learning uh, category, which I'm usually thinking about. Uh, and those sort of have different problems and different solutions. And I think that those are more addressed. Uh, the, the debate proposal is sort of makes more sense in different uh, threat models. Okay, very cool. Um, I let's go to questions in the chat before I'm going to uh, before I'm too much monopolizing your time here. But uh, we have uh, Anna's hand up. I think she had yeah, to actually. Ah, okay. Um, who do we have next? I think it was perhaps March. Uh, yeah. 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 So a uh, really cool talk. I mean, every time we've been thinking about AI, we talk about the architectures and yeah, we could do different chips to improve learning. But I mean, it always comes down to the, like the data sets that we use for learning. Like if we look at autonomous vehicles, it's, you know, we have convolutional neural networks, identify things in the environment, and then we have to drive to that environment to teach the more nuanced things like when not to hit people who are crossing the street. Um, so I'm wondering if you have a perspective on movements for, let's say, building up these environments specific for AGI learning. Um, yeah, uh, I think I, I mostly don't have any <laughs> uh, opinion on that topic, so I'll, I'll pass. Sorry. Uh, we also had Giamo here in the chat. I'm not sure if you want to ask a question about. Okay, you can't speak, so perhaps I'll read it out. <laughs> uh, our cortex is able to modulate limbic system signals, right? How can we say that later provides the ground truth then? Uh, I see. Um, limbic system. Okay, so the limbic system is uh, uh, um, maybe 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 I'll interpret that question as hypothalamus and brainstem. Uh, the limbic system includes things in in. Uh, I I I don't think that the limbic system is a very useful way to split up the brain. Um, but we don't have to get into that. Um, let's see. Uh, so yeah, your cortex is able to modulate what happens in the brainstem. For example, if I think a thought like, uh, huh, you know, I wonder what would happen if I put a tarantula down my shirt, then like that makes me feel certain ways that, and that's reflected in the brainstem. Um, the way that I would describe that situation is that, um, Again, the, the hypothalamus and the brainstem have very little to go on when they're deciding what to do, uh, in response to, um, uh, you know, what the cortex is thinking and what's going on in the environment. Um, like they don't really know what you're thinking, but they have a little, little bits of information. Um, but one of the things that they 
get is are certain signals from the cortex itself. Um, so I think that are in the striatum in particular. So I think that there's, so let's say the amygdala, for example, um, could learn that certain types of thoughts, uh, if you think that thought, then probably what's going to happen afterwards is, uh, your heart rate is going to go up. Um, or, you know, the medial, uh, the ventral striatum can do that too. Um, so that would be, so the striatum is doing supervised learning there in the sense that there's kind of a ground truth, uh, in that you have your whole lifetime of learning that this type of thought, uh, has tended to be followed by your heart rate going up. Um, but then once the striatum has learned that model, then it can, you know, say, Hey, brainstem, you know, this pattern matches to the previous things that we've seen that, uh, are good times for you to raise your heart rate. And then the brainstem can be like, I have no idea what's happening in the world. I'm just the stupid circuit. But, you know, if you think that if you striatum think that this is a good time to raise my heart rate, then, well, that seems like as, as good an idea as any. So then the brainstem raises the heart rate. So that would be, um, sort of like the brainstem deferring to uh, these kinds of outputs of the cortex uh, in the absence of any uh, information that would suggest to do anything different than that. Um, I'm not sure if that was a great answer to your question, but um, you can re read the series for more and I'm, I'm happy to, uh, if you can reach out to me if, uh, if you want to follow up. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'm now going to offer uh, Anna's general comment uh, to see if you have perhaps any, you know, uh, yeah, any reaction to that. But she basically mentioned that there is substantial evidence that cortical representations have innately spe spe specified content. And as a simple example, she gave that visual feature detectors and many aspects of basic vision are innately specified. And contrast neural nets learn these. They develop feature de detectors such as oriented gabbros who learning. Um, uh, so... It's not necessarily straightforward to distinguish the hypothesis that um um uh so it is true that um the visual cortex tends to learn Gabor filters among other things on um, primary visual cortex um but one explanation for that would be the same explanation that happens in convolutional neural nets which is that, um, you know, you could train a hundred different convolutional neural nets with a hundred different random initializations and they'll all learn, uh, edge detectors, filters in their lower layers. Uh, and the reason is not that like somehow you put in the edge detectors innately, rather it's that they all have the same learning algorithm and they all see basically the same kind of training data, at least the same along that axis. So they all learn the same representations. Um, so I think that that is a common motif that happens in the cortex too. Uh, everybody has a similar, uh, learning algorithm and architecture, uh, and everybody sees similar training data. So everybody winds up with the same learned representations to some extent. Uh, and there are exceptions that I think prove the rule, which is that, you know, they have those experiments where they will like, I don't know, take a cat and it never sees any diagonal lines in its whole life. And it winds up with sort of weird inability to detect diagonal lines, if I'm remembering correctly. And I think that suggests that the sort of convergent learned representations type of hypothesis is actually a better fit to the data than the somehow the genome knows what an edge detector is type 
explanation. Uh, sorry if I'm misunderstanding anybody's point. Um, thank you. Uh, we have one minute left only, but uh, I wanted to see a little bit if people get excited about your work, which uh, I think many people here are. Um, what's kind of a way in which people can help your work follow? So maybe they could also entail a bit like, what are you up to next? Like, are you going to now totally dive into um, this more empathetic simulation bit or yeah, what's kind of like next on your agenda uh, in this quest? And then also how could people help if they get really excited about your work? Like a shameless plug moment, if you will. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, there were a lot of, um, uh, so for the past few months, well, okay. So I spent maybe half of my time doing this one main project, uh, which is uh, trying to work my way towards understanding social instincts uh, and how they're implemented in the hypothalamus and brainstem in interaction with other parts of the brain. Um, uh, so for that, I've been, um, uh, I've been sort of tidying up some of the loose ends from the series that I wrote six months ago. Like I've already found like a bunch of things that I was kind of confused about when I wrote it. Um, and I've gone back and made a few little edits about, uh, you know, exactly how does model-based reinforcement learning work in the brain? Uh, I had some areas where I kind of described it wrong. Um, so I've been trying to clean up my act and have better descriptions there. Um, and then that's sort of laying the groundwork for, uh, you know, understanding if there's, you know, if there's oxytocin receptors in the lateral septum, then like, how should I think about that? What, what are those possibly doing? Um, so I making progress towards doing that. Uh, and that's about half my time, the, the sort of that one neuroscience project. And then the other half, I'm just, um, doing sort of more general, uh, AGI safety type stuff, uh, conversing with other people in the field, uh, work correspondence and things like that. Um, if you read the last blog post of my series, post number 15, uh, I list out, um, I think seven, uh, maybe I already mentioned this, uh, seven open problems that I'm happy for people to work on. Uh, also feel anybody is welcome to reach out to me and to chat more. Well, maybe one final question. Um, do you, have you read the, anything on the open agency architecture? And if so, do you have any thoughts on this? Um, I think that's on my to-do list and that I haven't done it yet. Okay. Well, I would really, really love uh, your ideas on it once you have. But thank you so, so, so much for coming on. I think this is really one, some of the more inspiring work that's currently being done to what's AI safety. And you've done so much research and I really love the way that you explained it and laid out where even like the GNA person can understand it, even though that's not always the case on the AI alignment blog, but you do a really, really good job at that. So thanks for kind of like taking a bunch of other people along for the ride. Thanks for being so concrete. Thanks for listing open problems. Um, yeah, thanks a ton for your work. Thanks for coming on and sharing it. I hope it wasn't the last time. And um, yeah, thank you very much. I hope you have a, all a wonderful day. And thank you. Um, I wish you much, much success with this. Our lives may depend on it. <laughs> Did this conversation pique your interest? Maybe it even inspired a bit of existential hope about the future in you. Search for Fawcett Institute on YouTube or Twitter to stay up to date. Or visit foresight.org to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter, and join our efforts. We are entirely funded by your donations, so please support us if you like what we do. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs> <laughs>